0: Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. And if this is your first time hearing our show, good news. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are. And every educator we have on this show, whether it's a teacher, a coach, or a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us. So please do tell us about the educators who've helped inspire you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Well, this week on the show, I have to say I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. You know, it's the end of the year, and one of my favorite things to do at the end of any year is to check out all of those like best of lists you know uh, the best music of 2022 the best movies of 2022 and well it's time for us here at teachers lounge to reflect on and revisit a few of our favorite conversations from this year we really do pride ourselves on having all sorts of different educators from all sorts of backgrounds who teach all sorts of different subjects on this show and this year i think that We've had human rights educators, student teachers, special education substitute teachers, theology professors, physics and social studies teachers, just to name a few. And we've also talked with middle school and high school students about how the pandemic has shaped their education. I mean, we even had the Illinois Teacher of the Year on this show this year. But here on today's edition of Teachers Lounge, we have got three interviews from this past year that we just really wanted to share with you again. It's with middle school teacher Aubrey Barnett, who is trying to transform her school's English classes by putting students in charge of their own learning. And we've also got Rachel Metcalf, who gives us the perspective of someone entering education in 2022, a teacher in their early 20s just starting out. And then we'll finish up with University of Illinois professor and professional music producer, Lamont Holden, a.k.a. The Letter L Beats. Lots of great stuff. And again, before we really get into any of that, I just want to say a real sincere thank you to everyone that has listened to the show and taken the time to tell us about a teacher, tell us about a person in their community who they think really does deserve a spotlight that's doing awesome work. Thank you to everyone that's taken the time to send in a story idea of something happening in education in their kids' school or in their family's school that, that they think more people should know about. I, I really do appreciate everyone that's that's taken some time to interact and, and listen to Teacher's Lounge in 2022, and we've got lots of really cool stuff lined up for 2023. We're excited to tell you about it. Okay, let's just dive in. First off, we are revisiting my chat with Aubrey Barnett. She's now in her second year teaching at Flynn Middle School in Rockford, Illinois. And it's it's kind of been the culmination of her work in mental health and her work at a more experimental school. And now here she is at this huge public school wondering if all those convictions about education were gonna work. And our conversation really begins as she tells us about teaching at a progressive experimental school at the beginning of the pandemic.
1: I had my kids, they had a podcast called Z Noodle. It's 25 episodes on YouTube. We interviewed Mayor McNamara and we interviewed Dick Durbin via Zoom during, literally during a global pandemic. Dick Durbin got on with my kids, my kids, and was like, let me give you the message about, and like you can watch our senator basically give all the right answers back in the day when it was still May of 2020 and give really good advice. And my kids ask an interview questions, exactly what you're doing. We developed a video podcast. It was incredible. It was, they named it, they ran it. You would love it. You would love it, Peter.
0: That's awesome. I really wish I would have known about this in the moment now.
1: When I was first in Chicago Public Schools writing grants, my argument was around digital footprint. Look, listen kids have a digital footprint these days. They're on social media left and right. We know colleges are looking. We know high schools are looking. We know jobs are looking. How about we actually train them to have a digital footprint from day one where you find their name and there is all of the work that they've done as a young professional so that there's at least something to balance it out in that way. Like, at least it would be impressive. Like, well, yes, this, but we could forgive that because that everybody. Look at this body of work. So that at Spectrum, I was able to achieve that at a pinnacle. Again, I, I just blows my mind that we got interviews with those people at that point. It was amazing. That is
0: wild. Yeah, I, I will make sure to stay tuned if we have a F- Flynn podcast next year.
1: <laughs> oh, I, you know what? If I could get those kids to do that, that would be truly incredible. They might get there. This first group with COVID, there was just no chance. They needed so much social emotional reconnection, and so much trust rebuild, and they had so little relationship with each other as eighth graders when they're supposed to have had this kind of intense three years. They didn't have enough confidence to do that kind of work in front of each other yet.
0: I'm curious for you, just like looking back on your first year, like what are some of the big takeaways that you have about how everything went there?
1: There was something I really should have expected because I've done the research and I know the numbers, and that is chronic Absenteeism, mobile populations where you really do lose a number of children, constant in school and out of school suspensions, and then expulsions.
0: Yeah, those, and which we've covered on this show, which Rockford was always near the top, if not at the top of the state. In.
1: The, the combination of those four things in that way of that sense of, and that's why Rockford's done what they've done with their curriculum, they're very structured and they want all the quarters to be the same and they don't want people to read too many things outside the plan, especially within grade levels because they know that kids move around so much. So they've actually seen around some interesting corners and they're trying to do some work strategically um, that is kind of important and responsive to that population but it's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, I remember looking at at student mobility, which right is, is the idea of, of students moving between different schools throughout the course of the school year. And I was really interested in, in how much of an impact that made, like what really is the impact of that on students' day-to-day lives. And
1: I had several students leave. Um, some as early in the year as like October because some zoning issue. I had students who, you know, were using different addresses and you kind of knew it. Um, I had ones whose families were moving. I had divorce issues and watching those kids go and having to say goodbye to them and not having the proper way to do that and sometimes you really didn't know if they were going to leave or not and having to work through those conflicts and relationships and conversations and what their friends are saying and what their social media is saying um all of that is like just it takes up emotional space and energy in a room and you don't want to brush children off the side and go well okay and let's go back to learning but you have you have to address it
0: no for sure yeah i think you already mentioned in this conversation that that you have a background you know working as a mental health professional for for kids before you got in the classroom right
1: yeah, I actually I was in the classroom in Chicago Public Schools, and I came up against an administrator. It was like rah, rah, didn't work, and I walked away. I was like, I blaze a glory young version of me was like, mm-mm. and um, I ended up going back and wanting to get my master's in this work. I got my degree in pastoral counseling, so I worked at Alexian Brothers, which is the only freestanding mental health care hospital in the state of Illinois. That's really significant, and I didn't take the path of bereavement or kind of some of the other things. I went clinical inside a pastoral program. I was the oddball because I went to a hospital setting and did all of this very diagnostic insurance-based work where I was running groups. And I specifically, like, specifically ran groups for kids who were school anxiety and school refusal. So kids who hate, hated, who got vomited, got nauseous, and we did exposure therapy to get them to be able to come back to school. Um, and then from there, I moved to inpatient because I kind of felt I needed and wanted that challenge. And what I loved about inpatient work and what I crave, what I love as a person is I love getting authenticity. And when another human being looks at you back and a child can reflect back their wonder in the world, it's everything, it's everything. And when you're on an inpatient unit and children have been pulled back so far where they're so very vulnerable, you basically get to be that person in a sacred space with them to recraft a sense of willingness to live or a sense of reality in which to live in. And so I, you know, it's fun, funny ways. On an inpatient unit. Kids come and go all the time. Discharge happens any given day when a psychiatrist decides and you're constantly closing out and starting anew every single day. So in the odd way, I really do believe that my own journey and the work that I've done every step of the way prepared me. I would not be the teacher I was at Flynn. I could not do this work if I hadn't had the training that I had. It's simply been critical to my ability to do it.
0: And then at some point, you decide you have to come back.
1: Uh, Once I had had children, it became more important. My family, my mother's also an educator and our family is really committed to children and to education and we were looking for the right thing. And when I found Spectrum, I was working on the inpatient unit, it was like 10.30 at night and I discovered their website and I knew instantly, instantly that these people got it. They just got it and their website was atrocious. It was heinous. I mean, it was embarrassing. It was like, it was like a middle schooler had made it. And it was like, oh my God, but the content, man, oh, Sam. So um, we picked up. What and- spoke to you? They knew that it was about, they like multi-age. They knew yeah. that children were not supposed to be grade level. They were about multiple intelligences. They knew that children would not achieve smartness in a single way. They knew about Piagetian social development. They cared about social emotional learning. What I love the most, though, is that they love the environment. And yeah. they where it's at, the building it's at, the kids are in the woods all the time. And they're like in the prairie. And I, I love it. I am a born and born I, child. I, yeah, I...
0: I got to go there one time when they were doing their like outdoor Christmas concert during the pandemic with, uh, you know, and they were like deer running in the background. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. You talk about how like your experience working in mental health prepares you for what you do now. I think it's even interesting too about like, like you said, like getting to step from that initially into spectrum where it is a much more, you know, experimental, creative model and be able to like hone in on like, okay, what works and what doesn't work. And then take that into what people would think of as more like traditional structure, like in a public school, system, a very big public school system like you're in now.
1: Yeah, people think either A, you know, what you do at Spectrum can't be replicated because the kids or the parents or the numbers. The system or whatever, right? right? Fill in the blank.
0: And you said your mom is an educator as well? She is.
1: She's the principal of Spectrum.
0: Again, a very common theme with educators we have on this. You know, I'm not a teacher myself, but like also like I work, I'm an education reporter and my mom and my stepmom are teachers and so many people we have on there, like both of their parents are teachers or all of their siblings. It's a very common thing. I don't know if you were one of those people that was like playing school and like teaching to stuffed animals as a kid, but that's another thing that comes up a lot. Not
1: only that, so, I mean, I have a legacy. My grandmother was a teacher. She actually taught in the first integrated school in Michigan. Um, on my mom's side, then my great grandmother was the first ever female professor at Roosevelt University. She was a piano teacher and a music teacher. And so, you know, there's really a legacy of, of that in my family.
0: Yeah. It's interesting with you, with your, your mom being an educator, like uh, one of the questions that we always ask people on this show is that, you know, we have a lot of educators that get nominated to be on this show. And usually it's because, you know, they, people find them to be very inspirational or be doing really great work. And I'm always curious to ask like, our teachers, I'm sure that there are people in your life over the course of your education journey, probably up to, including your mother, that are maybe some of the reasons that you went into education in the first place, I, I'd imagine.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities, his, his writing, his narrative in that gripped me by the throat and said, elementary ed. You know like elementary ed and and in that way that he was a sociologist and a writer and and he just he told the right story he Um, went
0: around to i believe like some of the lowest and some of the highest funded school districts in the country around the early 90s
1: that sounds yeah right it was and that's the thing is it was the same time he was writing about the same time i was in school and so it was this sense of shock and overwhelm like other children were getting this while i was getting this and that deep sense of injustice just had to be righted, it had, you know, like I felt that call, it had to be righted. Um, And then, uh, you know, my sixth grade teacher, sixth grade was a good year for me and she taught us Shakespeare and she was just enough sassy, you know, and enough smart. And I actually, when I went back and student taught, she had moved to fourth grade and I got to kind of learn to student teach alongside her again, Um, her name was Miss Barr. And she just, she was really an outstanding person
0: yeah you know it's it's interesting that melding that with looking at specific data of you know inequalities and what they look like in your particular school district. I know that that was something one of the things that you learned from your mom was how to use data in a school setting like that.
1: I love it. I was really terrified this year. This was my first year to put my you know put it where you say you got it and I don't know for sure that meaningful relational creative learning yields test results. I know that people of my belief in academia say that. I know there's a lot of literature that says that, but it's never, and you know what? Every story you want to be when you want to be that teacher says it's possible, but you don't know if you're going to get that because you can't demand that from human beings. And my therapy taught me that. You can't demand change. You can't, how, how silly of us to think we can demand children to change a certain amount in a certain timeframe ever tried to potty train a child, good luck.
0: One of the things that you guys did this school year that that we had talked about in the past was this kind of curriculum model that you were working on called uh, Plan-Do-Study-Act. And there might be some people that are aware of what that means. There might be some people that are hearing that for the first time and are kind of confused by it. So really quick, Aubrey, could you give people a brief explainer on what that means?
1: Sure. So... Plan, Do, Study, Act is just a process for um, planning what you wanna do and doing it and then reflecting on how you did. So if you were gonna build something, you'd look at the instructions and lay out the space, right? And you decided you'd go along and start building and then you decided if you followed the instructions correctly or not, right? You'd review your work and realize the IKEA distractions were upside down or right, these goofy things and then, and then you sit on the piece of furniture and you decide if it's, if it's worked or not. Um, so this question is, how do you apply that very basic principle of learning? Very simple thing. And of course, pharma, you know, which is where PDSA comes from, the medical industry does very specific things with it as far as targeted outcomes, what they wanna achieve, how they look at data. Rockford was using it um, and what I was instructed from Susan Fumo was for teachers to think about their individual units and courses of study. So, so I'm gonna teach how to understand characterization and when it's direct and indirect and dynamic or flat characters, what is that vocabulary? What am I gonna have the kids do to practice it? And how am I gonna know that they've really achieved it? What's it gonna look like? And it's supposed to be an overview of that. And so when I came in, I saw a lot of people using test scores. Like, well, you took a pre-test and you got a, as a class, you got a 40%. And now after my unit, you've got an 80%. And it's like, what does that say? That, that information is not very useful. Um, and, and it doesn't actually get at the work in any kind of meaningful way. And, but it's all people have been instructed to do. It's not their fault. They really are trying to do their best, but there just wasn't um, another lens to see this. And I brought in that therapeutic lens because I had to in North Shore you know, Community Hospital, I had to write a burp note, behavior, intervention, response, and plan every single night for every single patient. That's what insurance required of me. So for me, I saw where PDSA is real life. It is real life, you know, and um, we turn that over to the kids we said hey here's the standard. Here's what you're supposed to learn you're supposed to be able to know the parts of prefix suffix and root and identify them. How do you want to do that make a booklet. Make a make a podcast make a video make your own slide, do a presentation. I don't know. But when we'd slowly introduce them to these different types of resources. So it wasn't like you're on your own, we'd scaffolded it, but slowly we released them. And then we eventually got to a point after six, seven, eight weeks, I didn't even need to say anything. I would literally in a, in a hundred minute block that people complain about, I would go, bum, 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 bum. You know what to do. The time is yours. That was my phrase. You know what to do. The time is yours. And they would just go. And it was beautiful. It was cool. And so I'm, we're planning on trying to scaffold it better into next year and start at the beginning and uh, how to build it out so that it's even better. We'll see.
0: Yeah. And you guys got projects and presentations and audio visual stuff about <laughs> all sorts of topics to explain that core idea that they were getting at that piece of curriculum. And it's, it's fascinating that you guys also, like, it, it's not like this even happened for the entire school year necessarily, right?
1: Letting them take control in the third quarter, the beginning the second half of the year, after they'd come back, and we'd said, okay, the first half of the year was post-COVID world. We're establishing that this is a learning community and this is what it looks like. But quickly enough, we released the reins. We Said Okay, you know you do and that made all the difference student after student after student I did exit interviews with each and every student I had. So my last two days I just sat down I put a movie on. And then I called one by one and I said, you know, let me give you some feedback about us close the relationship and you give me some feedback. And kids said, miss Burnett, you really got us. You really cared about us. really cared about like and it just it was it wasn't one or two or three or four and after a while you really get the message listen adolescents love talking about themselves they're their (laughs) own favorite topic it's developmentally true okay so you take advantage of that and you use it and you motivate and it it made the difference because when it came time when i what i did is i said look at what the test is telling you it's going to test you i actually went to the map site I highlighted the exact language of the, and it's this frame of the questions. It literally says it the way the questions will be said. And I had them look through it and say, what do I know like the back of my hand and which ones do I not know? And then they went back and really strategized over those specific things. I think it's because they looked at the language of the test. And I was instructed to do that for my clinical licensure exam for the state of Illinois. And I took a test prep expensive course to learn how to do that. So again, it's my education that taught me we're prepping these kids all wrong. It's not test prep, it's understanding the test. It's actually knowing what you're doing, like playing the game of baseball, instead of just going out and throwing a ball and swinging a bat, right? I mean, we're not actually giving kids the benefit of the doubt to help them achieve it all.
0: That was Rockford Middle School teacher, Aubrey Barnett. Next up, it is my chat with Rachel Metcalf. Again, she has had quite a busy year between finishing a master's degree, student teaching at her old high school in the same classroom that she once learned English in with the same teachers who used to grade her essays when she was 16 years old. It was a a really quite uniquely surreal and really, really rewarding experience for her. And let's just jump right into it.
2: It was possibly the strangest thing. I loved it. I mean, I was so grateful to do my um, internship there just be like, mentored by the people who taught me English and who had to deal with my essays that I used to write when I was 16. Um, and I apologized to them. As soon as I got my first like stack of essays that I had to grade, I went into their uh, the English office and I'm like, I am so sorry for what I put you through because <laughs> what I'm reading, God help me. God help you. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I, I could not be more grateful for the opportunity that I had teaching at my old high school.
0: Have you run into students now where you like look in there and it's like looking in a mirror and you're like, oh my god, there's 14-year-old Rachel?
2: Yeah. Um, yes, I had a few of those and it was uncanny. Um, they're like, <laughs> you don't understand my life, miss. You don't get it. I'm like, no, I do. I get it exactly to the T, except I didn't have a smartphone in high school. That's like the only difference. In the same classroom, I taught in the same classroom that like I was in when I was a kid. It was so surreal. Um, but I'm so excited to see them in 10 years, because it's been 10 years since I was in that classroom and I have changed dramatically. I like to tell myself, um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah.
0: Same, the, the same classroom part is, is the one where you're like, that had to be a lot of emotions.
2: My cooperating teacher was actually my director when I was in plays in high school. So she had a picture of me in one of the cast pictures in the back from, you know, 2014, just in the back. So I'd walk into that classroom and I would see me every day. And it was, it was emotional because I think back to like when I was in high school and I wasn't confident or I, wasn't, I didn't know who I was. No one did. No one knows who they are in high school.
0: Um, I wasn't even good at pretending like it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Neither. I like to think I was, but I know I wasn't. But I mean, I just I went in there every day and like I would look at where I would sit. I would look at everything. And it was just so, so surreal. Um, Like you just want to go back and like shake yourself and be like, hey, your life's not going to end at 16 because he won't text you back. He won't call you back. Like you're fine. Right before spring break, we actually did an activity with, my students. And I did that cliche, put a line of tape down the middle of the classroom, you know, you know, the one and we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. We were starting that up after break and it's a very, very heavy book and it has a lot of topics. And I know in the classroom, there were some, there was beef happening. Like, I don't know how else to put it. And I was like, you know what, we need to squash this. We're not going into this book where we're all going to have to be vulnerable with ourselves without being able to like be a part of this family. So I would go with them, like step forward if you or a friend or a loved one have experienced so and so and so. And I would appropriately share what my experience and just being vulnerable with these kids, explaining to them how I was in high school, showing them pictures of me when I was in high school, they were like, they could not fathom the fact that an adult was being emotionally honest with them. And they like it blew their brains out of their head that like this person which i don't even consider myself an adult i'm an imposter um this adult is
0: everyone if you're listening keep it a secret
2: (laughs) yeah um i just told someone i was 19 the other day i haven't been 19 in six years it's fine but they they would they came up to me after class and they're like you know hey miss like i i've never had a teacher actually sit and tell me they're proud of me or that they love me and mean it and like i was like oh well like yeah, I do. And I'm like trying not to like start sobbing in front of these kids, but like that's what they need. They need someone to tell them that they love them.
0: I don't know if you know, but my uh, my mom is a teacher
2: mm-hmm.
0: and my stepmom is a teacher. A lot of my family it tends to happen, I'm sure. And I'm sure you've got some teachers in your family too. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I, I think that my mom said, I hope that I'm like not like this is like a quote that like Benjamin Franklin <laughs> said that yeah. I'm going to attribute to my mom yeah. now. <laughs> but like, uh, I just something like, I, I think that she said something to the effect of, Especially when you're being a teacher, that people won't really remember the things that they learned in your class, but they will always remember the way that you made them feel.
2: Yeah, I, I think that if your mom did say that, <laughs> she is correct. And I, I look back at teachers I've had, and I can't tell you what I learned in my junior year English class, but I can tell you that my junior year English teacher pulled me outside and sat with me while I cried. Yeah. And I will never like forget that. And I will always love him for that because like I needed someone there for me. I couldn't tell you a thing about the crucible, but I can tell you about teachers that care about me. So, I mean, that at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> you none of us are gonna live forever. Um, and the mark you wanna leave on the world, is it that you taught a book really well, or is it that you made a kid feel like they were worth
0: something. Yeah, I had to read Huck Finn twice in school, Rachel. I had two separate occasions at two different levels, in high school and in college, I don't remember it at all. You today. shouldn't, it's
2: not a good <laughs> book, it's not good.
0: Obviously a big part of being a teacher, and I'm sure you've gotten a huge taste of this just over the last couple months, is also the way that the kids make you feel. <laughs> and I, I believe I saw one of the kids made you and like crocheted you, like an opossum, right?
2: Oh my gosh! Okay, hold on. Let me go grab this. Do you have, have it? One second. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: Yes. It's massive. That's awesome. big, too. That is way bigger than I thought it's it was going to be.
2: Boy, it is big.
0: Um, <laughs> As they all should be.
2: <laughs> I had mentioned to her that I love possums and um, I had given up my my lunch break and my my planning period to sit with this girl because she was struggling with like everything under the sun and I get it because I also struggled with everything under the sun when I was a freshman in high school mm-hmm. and so when you ask me like Rachel hey do you see any of yourselves in your kid yes the girl who crocheted me this <laughs> is a <laughs> replica of who I was when I was 14 and it's terrifying
0: I say um, beautiful and also terrifying
2: <laughs> terrifying but she um she had mentioned to me she's like hey I just, um, you like possums, right? And I'm like, yeah. And then one day she came to school with this seven pounds, like it's, it's heavy. Like there's weight inside this seven pounds crocheted opossum. And she named it George, George opossum. He's Irish. Um, and I'm like, I just, I started like tearing up, like who does this? Like, I mean, like in a good way, like I cannot believe that you took the amount of time you did to make this as like, Hey, thanks for like listening. Like, you don't have to thank me. This is what I do. Like, this is why I went into teaching. But on my last day of, um, student teaching, I, I don't think I've ever cried (laughs) so much in my life and kids just kept bringing me things. Like I had a girl draw me on the front of, um, Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon. Like she wrote me a whole thing and like this was just like one of them like all the kids signed a book writing really nice things to me just saying how much i mean to them and i don't even remember half of the things that i've said to them but they did and like that's like how you know you got into the right field it's like talk I about
0: great power comes great responsibility right like that exactly. you don't even remember the things I that you said i
2: am man of the classroom i have way too much responsibility
0: you are their uncle ben's <laughs> <laughs> Except for the That's one tragic. that survives, <laughs> <laughs> the Aunt May, I don't, I don't know.
2: Thanks for that. There you, go. I mean,
0: you know what? You're right. You get to be Spider-Man.
2: Thank you. Because I really, oh God, I mean, I can't even joke about dying in a classroom now with everything happening in this.
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 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 It's like we said, it's been a very heavy couple weeks. So I'm at least glad that it's the summer now, at least that you could take a little time to Recoup. <laughs> to decompress, recoup. Yeah. But again, just with the opossum, like if anyone's worried about the kids and just like generally go back and listen to like those two minutes of you describing those kids making you that and drawing your picture on that and be like, the kids are good. The kids are going to be okay. All right.
2: The kids are all right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the everything else that's happened in the last three weeks or I, I can't imagine how, again, I've had these conversations with a few different teachers now and it's, beyond horrifying and upsetting that it even has to be a conversation that we have on a show like this i
2: don't know if you did this living in a cornfield and sandwich but i didn't have my very first which is so upsetting to say this hold on let me think of this before like i get upset my very first lockdown drill until i was in high school same i and it was like my later years it wasn't early it was oh by the way this is what happens if like some there's an intruder it was always called an intruder it was never yeah. called anything else, um, and I was like, "Oh, okay, ha, ha ha ha!" Like this won't happen. And then, like Sandy Hook happened, and I'm like, "Well, that's not that's that's just an outlier. Like that doesn't happen here." Um, and then it does, and then it does. And um, I remember last year I was subbing in a district, and I was subbing on the day that they had a lockdown drill, and I was the it was my very first time being a teacher in that scenario. And I knew it was a drill, but like the adrenaline that ran through me and like the, like, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And then this past semester when I was student teaching, just in, out of the blue, we were, we weren't even discussing anything. The tragedy in Texas had not even occurred yet. And this girl raises her hand and goes, miss, what do we do when there's a school shooting? Now, when yeah, when, not if when and I looked at her and I said honey let's not worry about that right now she goes but there's so many windows she goes can you just go outside and check and then I'm like will it make you feel better and she's like yeah and so I went outside and I looked through the windows and I had to come back in and I had to tell them if we ever had to do this every single one of you all 28 of you need to cram yourselves." into that corner because I can see everyone right now. And like the shock on their face, the worry on their face. And I'm like, I don't wanna do this right now. Like I I don't. And this is, and I'm sure the other teachers you've interviewed have said the same thing, but every teacher, no matter where they are, what classroom they're in, what building they're in, they always look for an escape route and how to barricade themselves into a classroom. And that should not be the case. I should not have to worry about how many students I would save jumping in front of a door.
0: Yeah. And again, like it's it's something that's ridiculous that has to be a part of this, but also it is a part of this. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of negligent to not talk about this as a part of the teacher experience because it is a part of the teacher experience.
2: Yeah, it is.
0: When you were starting off and when you first got in student teaching in, in January, I assume, was it overwhelming? How did they kind of help you get acclimated to everything?
2: So I was lucky enough to substitute before I started student oh, teaching. Good. So I was able to like know what a classroom was like supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that very, very delicately because substitute teaching is wildly different from having your own classroom. But I knew that like students had this kind of like humor about them where they wanted to make you sad with everything they said um but that's just gen z humor like you can't take it personally if you do take it personally you should not be a teacher but i the first my first day in january i had this kid who i love dearly absolutely roast me on like i walked into the classroom and i laughed and he just made fun of my laugh for about 10 minutes (laughs) i'm just sitting there like what am I doing? What am I doing? And there were days where I'm like, I, I can't do this. And I was so close to just leaving. I don't know. I mean, I had tons of support from my English team. So like, I, I cannot thank them enough for what they did for me for shaking me back into my, my pants, my shoes. And like, you're not leaving. You're not leaving. You're a good teacher. You're just stressed and welcome to teaching. Like if you can't <laughs> handle this now, you should leave. But if you, think you can, you should stay.
0: I think the thing that says it all is that you were able to get from, you know, being mocked on that first day to showing a picture of yourself, let alone an old picture of yourself to a group of high schoolers. That's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do to get roasted.
2: I actually showed them that picture three days after I started. So I, oh I, I got roasted. And then, you know, I'm like, you know what? At this point, like, I might as well just jump in. They're going to find something. They're going to go to the library for once and find the old yearbook and find me with the huge, like black glasses and a bad eyeliner like might as well just show it to them and then that's when they started respecting me more actually weirdly enough like if i'm self-deprecating what do i have to lose like i'm already my worst enemy like you can't be my worst enemy
0: my first facebook profile picture in 2009 was a platypus like i don't they i don't know what that was i don't know what i was thinking but they would find it in 30 seconds
2: they do they do find it they're like miss is this you and they'll hold up their chromebooks and it's like me from my junior year and like some horrible hollister outfit i'm like yeah where did you find that they're like um your old twitter on like the way back machine or something like that i'm like i hate the internet somehow (laughs) like if you can't laugh at yourself and you can't joke with these kids and like fire it back at them appropriately yeah appropriately yes um
0: they will bury you
2: (laughs) they they will they will eat you alive and you, it's eat or be eaten in the classroom. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know what, yeah, I had pink hair, I wore my knee-high knockoff converse, what are you gonna do about it? Nothing that my mom didn't already make fun of me for. Go, <laughs> Go ahead.
0: That was now middle school teacher, Rachel Metcalf. Okay, and finally, to round it out, it is University of Illinois music professor and professional producer, Lamont Holden, AKA the letter L beats, Lamont and I talk about how teaching has influenced his creative process as a producer, about helping students understand the business of music and how to make a living. And he also recently penned a new hip-hop fight song for the University of Illinois, and we talk about what that means to him and to the entire community. I was doing some research today, and I just spent like a half hour, like, just <laughs> listening to your beats that are on YouTube. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, if for anyone that that like hasn't heard, like, you had that really cool, like, West Side Gun, hip-hop soul-type beat in there. Oh, uh, you was, did your research, like, research! I, I, did. I got... Uh, listen, this is this is my job, man. I, I got it. I got it. They had Push T one. They had the Amine-type one. There's some... Uh, so I, I was listening to all that stuff, and I wanted to ask you a little bit just, like, about your your own artistic process. And so I was curious, for you, like, when you're making beats, is it something where you go when the inspiration strikes and you know, you know, that's why I need to sit down. Or are you the type of person that's like, I can't be waiting all day for the inspiration to come. I got to sit down and put in the work. And then hopefully the inspiration catches up with me. Like, how does it usually work for you?
3: I think it's a little bit of both. Cause I think ideally yeah. really, you want to like, just be inspired and that happens sometimes and you just go. But the problem with that is, one, sometimes you're inspired and you're in the middle of something else, right? Um, But then the other thing that happens is, you know, there's a discipline to the craft, too. And, you know, if I haven't been inspired in two weeks, I can't not be in a doll for two weeks because I teach it, for God's sakes, right? So I have to be (laughs) constantly practicing, you know what I'm saying? It's uh, it's gardening. It's not architecture. Mm. When you grow a beat, it feels different than when you build a beat. You know what I'm saying? Because you build it, you're just following a plan, right? It's uninspired in the whole nine. That's Paint by happens.
0: numbers, right? Right, yeah.
3: That's kind of when you sit down just because you got to sit down and you think it's a discipline thing, that's what happens, right? And that's okay if you're still trying to get, but you know what I mean? And still, like, you can't Kobe can't go days without shooting the ball because he's going to get rusty. You know what I'm saying? So right. that technical practice in, but you might not love that practice. But then I go sit and listen to something where I grew it and I was like, oh, yeah, I could tell I took my time. I need to spend more time in that headspace. And when it all shakes out, what that really means is I, I need to spend more time being inspired and not just doing it because I need to do it.
0: Yeah. But I mean let's start talking about the stuff that you've been working on. I mean specifically with this anthem too. I mean tell me about how that all got started, how you got involved, all that stuff.
3: Yeah, the anthem is a it's it's a 10-year story when you really really think about it, right? I guess there's kind of two stories to it. There's the most recent story within the last 2 years and then there's the 10-year story, right? I would say the 10-year story started with an artist I was working with in Chicago named Young General and mm-hmm. he had a song called White Sox Fitted. And he um, got a feature on it with Mickey Halstead and Twan Gabb. If you know Chicago hip hop, you know, those are some big names. When he did the song, they did a video over at Leaders Clothing Store, which is, you know, big for the culture in Chicago. Um, and then the Sox found out about it and he put Lee England, a black violinist, on the song. And they invited uh, Young General and Lee out to play the song at the seventh inning stretch. Right now, ironically, it wasn't my beat. Um, he got the, I was selling, we were in the studio and I was selling a piece of equipment. I was buying a piece of equipment and a guy that was selling it to me, uh, you know, this is 10 years ago. So it's not like you found, now you find producers all the time, but it's not like you just find a producer all the time. So my artist was like, well, tell him to come in and play some beats. Is this here? All right, cool. So he came in, he plays that beat. He winds up, you know, making it white socks fitted. I was like, man, I really want that. I was thinking about the sports thing. I was like, wait a minute, I'm an alumni of the University of Illinois. We have a very concentrated audience of folks that love their sports teams. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's Midwest. It gets cold in the middle of the winter. Like, you know, this is a great place because, you know, I've been making beats since 07 and I'm starting to have this idea. It's 2012. Right. Um, there's a there's a, a former basketball player who was rapping. I was at his house one day and he was making some songs, but he was telling me about how he don't really got to work a job. You know, he pretty much makes a living just being a former Illini. Right. And I was just thinking about the power of that. Right. Now, wow. I didn't play as much as he did. Like, you know, he's he's him. He's a big name. I wasn't. Right. And so I was just really thinking about that intersection. And in 2016, when I moved to Atlanta. I've been making beats for like nine years. But being in Atlanta really gave me what I would call my master's degree in the music industry, where it taught me really, what does it mean to monetize music? You're not selling music. Actual in all actuality, you're selling medium. Right. Yeah. So. They've already kind of consolidated everything to this phone. What I'm selling is culture, right? And so we did an iteration of the song and I turned it in. I wanna say summer 2015, I turned it into the director of basketball operations while I was still living here.
1: Yeah. But
3: it was based on, you know, um, Illinois, the Illini. The Illiniwek tribe is a real tribe, right? Mm. We used to have some traditions around our athletic programs that while it felt like they were solemn and authentic. We're just made up. You know yeah. what I
0: mean? I, I was gonna ask you about that too, where we're talking about like, you know, like why now, like why we need this change in, in culture and all that. I was like, I wonder if that has
3: something to do with it. So about 10 years ago now, I think it's been 10 years, we got rid of the chief. There is yep. no, it's not representative of a real tribe. The stereotype and the trope that Disney made up, we listened to our Native American brothers and sisters and we got rid of the chief. The representation right. that happened at halftime and then the symbol, right? there's probably some kind of light divide here in town based on this, right? I've done some radio shows, some other media, right? Um, but the previous song I did was based on that song, right? Right. It had, we you know, we were just talking about basketball, whoever was on the team at that time. Well, that song was short-sighted for so many reasons. One, because I used this thing that we eventually got rid of and is, is deemed to be culturally inappropriate. Two, because I was just talking about the basketball team. I didn't rap, I got a local rapper. Yeah. Three, I didn't have the full vision and I wasn't a professor at that time right while i was in atlanta, atlanta i got hired as an adjunct right and then i got and then living in atlanta during the pandemic i got the full-time gig but i didn't move back because um again we were still in the pandemic but once i got hired i said uh, so then literally i get hired in november the chancellor sends out our chancellor robert jones is a black man yeah. he sends out um a notice talking about how we need new school traditions right this is in the same year we had a pandemic where the world uh came out to show their support Of Black lives and and show their disdain against the murder of George Floyd, right? You know, helping people elevate to positions where they wouldn't normally have gotten those chances. I think that's a lot of what was the context of this this message that the chancellor sent out, right? Adam J. Cruz, Dr. Adam J. Cruz, he's a, uh, um, a professor of music education here. He's the one who recruited me. You know, because, yeah. you know, we because we also have an ISYM hip hop camp that we do in the summer. But I'll talk about that later. You know, he and I. Co- I got family. that noted down. I got that noted Google, down. too. <laughs> Google, Google. So he told me, he said the Illini anthem is a promise. He said that when you arrive here, no matter your culture, no matter your ethnic background, no matter where you came from, socioeconomically, that we have a place for you and we're going to honor your culture. And particularly in the school of music, we're going to honor the music that you want to make that is important to you culturally. Right after we watch all these talented musicians from Chicago bypass us to go to HBCUs. Great. Go to your HBCUs. But you know, we want black students in our band too, that, you know, play that are great players and also can bring something new uh, to the fold. We don't, this is only the tip of the iceberg of what this thing can really be. You know what I'm saying? Literally, when you think about it, the song has only been out for like seven months. The video has only been out for like a week and a half. You know what I mean? What's this thing mm-hmm. going to be in two years or in five years or in 10 years? You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, it's a lot more than music. Mm-hmm. And I know that you guys got to perform at, at halftime of one of the basketball games too, right?
3: You know, the place was a madhouse. You know what I'm saying? We didn't have Orange Crush, unfortunately, but um, it was a great experience. I really had a lot of fun. And I think uh, the folks who care about Illini Nation are really taking to it.
0: Yeah, I think I saw you say in one of the videos too that your son got to be there to see it too.
3: Yeah, I was excited. So my son lives. That's in- got to make it even more special, right? No, nah, listen. So listen. So my son, he my son lives in Bloomington. He goes to University High School in Bloomington, which is right on Illinois State's campus, right? Mm-hmm. And He lived here for a time. And every time he's here, I'm always getting him on campus. We're doing this. We're doing that. Yeah. And so for me, because he wants to go to Ohio State. He's going to school on Illinois State's campus. So now I'm like competing because, you know, that's where he was born. His grandparents lived there. So now I'm yep. competing to make him in a line you know <laughs> You're a
0: recruiter now. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, you know, we got that shot on top of the State Farm Arena, right? You know what I'm saying? My son, um, his stepdad works for State Farm. He comes home one day. He was like, "Hey, Shad knows Jake from State Farm." I had to be like, "The dad performed on top of the State Farm Center. Now what?" You know, what I mean? <laughs> definitely a special moment. It was a special moment for us for sure.
0: Yeah, and like we we mentioned earlier, I mean, you guys are doing a lot more on campus with the uh, both your you know campus culture show, both with the. Uh, the the summer camp specifically i was i was i was curious to ask before we get into the summer camp about hosting that campus culture show since we've talked a lot about kind of building these tra- new traditions
3: well campus culture not only is it a way to amplify voices for the culture on this campus and campuses around the world right but also it's it's, it's an exemplar on how to do a podcast right and i tell these for good folks behind me the type of mic you use is just as important as your ethos for why you decide to get on the mic in the first place right and so my thought process is you know in the last 5 years mass media is changing right and there there have been spaces carved open for black folks right and so you're talking about our school where traditionally black higher academia is going to tell you you need to go find a career that's stable in finance or be a lawyer or be a teacher or something like that i'm saying no The times have changed. We can control our narratives. We can be uh, creatives. We can be entrepreneurs and we can be content creators and provide for ourselves doing that. I've watched it with my own two eyes down in Atlanta for four years, right? And so I feel like I'm bringing this kind of new wave to campus where it's like, you know, new black media is my job to represent that and create and facilitate that and create spaces for um, students on campus. So um, we did it for first semester and, you know, it was cool. I realized that when you have a podcast that's based on guests, that's just that's that's gonna be hard. This is gonna be really hard. Preaching um, the core. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. I hate because you know you book guests, right? People flake mm-hmm. out. You might pay somebody, they might not show up. And so, like, I'm like, all right, this can't be a guest thing, right? right. I need a co-host. And so there's a young lady named Anaya Jones who's a rising star here. I I have been training in no talent when I see it. She finna be out of here. And, you know, we, we had been following each other. She's in the I think she's doing sports business, but mm-hmm. she also I think she dabbles in marketing. Um, but she reached out and she was like, hey, I love what you're doing. I was wondering if you could uh, produce a theme song for my podcast called You're Wrong, Sir. Um, and it's about, you know, uh, black women in the sports and sports business spaces. Right. And it was interesting because, you know, I, you know, I have ambitions. I always have like a list of guests. Right. You know, we have some awesome alumni here at the school, including Sean Evans. Uh, you know, the creative hot ones. And of course, yeah. One Taylor Rooks. She goes, oh, I got Taylor's number. I No, gonna... no, 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 no. What? No, let me <laughs> I say, let me interview you first. And I said, we'll get to that. And I was just sitting on her, and, I go, <laughs> and I started watching her podcast. I'm like, Oh, she's good. I was like, oh, she's a star and she's she's so young. I go, she needs to be my, I need to ask her if she'll be my co-host. Cause now we don't have to worry about guests, we can just chop it up with each other. And then, you know, cause after the first episode wrapped, the minute the, the uh, cameraman hit stop, he goes, oh my God, that was so good. Basically our first episode was about Title IX violations, but it was a great discussion, but it was a lot more lively. It's everything I say it's going to be. It's a voice for the culture, it's something different. It's a dope content piece. It represents the University of Illinois. It's actually a vehicle for the Alana anthem because we use that as a theme song, right? And now with my co-host, we're actually amplifying uh, Black voices. We're amplifying the voices of women. And it's just dope. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'm proud of myself for leaving myself room to pivot and make it something into that. And I credit Anaya um, and our engineering staff and our our, um, our behind-the-camera staff for making it into something beautiful. And thank you for watching, by the way.
0: Absolutely. And you, you mentioned the, you know, your son. You're trying to get him to go to to U of I. I wanted to ask a little bit about the, the the youth camp, and I saw some video from that too. It's, you guys got a straight up concert going on too. Like it's not just like come in here and we're gonna show you the basics of of how to use these programs. You guys have like a straight concert going on.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so we're going into our fifth year. It would have been our sixth year if not for COVID. And it literally started with myself, Dr. Adam J. Cruz, and five students in one classroom. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we've been able to grow it, but because because here's what's crazy. We have a rock camp, right, which is pretty robust. And they put on a rock show at the end of camp. So we're like, all right, we're going to put on a hip hop show. We have our Canopy Club here is legendary. Snoop's performed here. Wu-Tang has performed here. Maroon 5, Tinashe, you know, many, many artists. And so they get a chance to get on that stage in the, the week and they perform in front of the whole camp and all the parents and everything like that. Um, and this year, what you saw was last year when we only had basically our Illinois uh, Summer Youth Music Program is a hundred year tradition from show choir to um, black chorus, to piano camp, to heart camp, right? right? Like he, students come for a week. They stay in the dorms, eat the dorm food, get to meet students from all over the state and all over the, uh, the, the uh, country. And they get special instruction in this craft, but we give them the same thing for hip hop. You know what I'm saying? But the idea being, all right, you wanna be an artist? We're gonna help you write your own song. If you need help learning how to rap, we're gonna do that. We, we have experts to get you ready. We invite in guest artists. Um, we got it, so we have one adult for every act. So my act, it might be one kid, it might be four kids. Um, and their own original beats, their own original lyrics, and they do a show. Um, we hired DJ Silky to do a backing track. And then we even have, because last year was just us, but on a regular year we have all the camps, we even have an elective time where, like, the kid from harp camp might come and learn how to DJ. And if yeah. he likes it so much, he might DJ at the show on Saturday. You know what I'm saying? But then the <laughs> kid that came here from hip-hop camp, might go to show choir camp and be like, yo, I think I'm going to wrap Hamilton in their show on Friday. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the type of stuff that, that winds up happening. You know what I'm saying? Hopefully you have all links there. If you know a student that you think would want to come to hip hop camp, please send them. Um, we have some scholarship options available. It's a week from July, excuse me, from June 26th to July 2nd. Um, And if you're an educator, it's a transformative experience. We actually had our symposium a couple of years ago. We're talking about bringing it back this year where there were so many educators that didn't understand how we were able to teach this to students because they, you know, a lot of like, especially music teachers, they think, you know, in terms of like principles and rules and really like hip hop is project based learning. You see what I'm saying? This project is based learning at its best because they do a show at the end. You see what I'm saying? And so when I started doing, when I started not only making music and then started teaching students how to make music, projects based learning became like my lifeline. And I was glad I understood how to do it. But that's how life works, right? We're not doing stuff for the sake of doing it. We're doing it to get to an end of some type. So um, please send your students to hip hop camp.
0: Let's finish off Lamont with just a couple quick rapid fire questions before we get out of here, which is, first of all, when it comes to teaching, what's something about teaching that you think is more important than people might realize or you just wish more people talked about it when they had these conversations?
3: Um, you're not the expert, you're the facilitator. I got some students who know more about me than engineering. So you know what I do? I give them chances to practice, paid practice if I can. And then something that you think is more important than people might realize. People don't understand how music functions in their life and particularly people who are trying to be producers. Every song is not popped at. Every song is not throwing money in the club. There's music you clean the house to. There's music certainly that you drink and party to, right? There's music you skate to. I think that people just have to understand how music, especially music producers and, and people who call themselves wanting to like, entertain people, right? Um, understand like what is the purpose of this record? What am I gonna use? When I hear this record, Like what am I gonna be doing while I'm listening to this record? And I think that becomes more of a guiding creative principle for musicians.
0: Lamont Holden, Professor Lamont Holden, let's give him the proper due. It's been an absolute pleasure, man, I appreciate it. Hey, thank
3: you, I appreciate you for having me. This was fun, this was fun.
0: That was Lamont Holden, a.k.a. The Letter L Beats. Again, thank you so much to everyone who has listened to Teachers Lounge in 2022. And as always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests, like everyone that we've had on in 2022. Send them our way, teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever it is that you're hearing the podcast, please do Subscribe, share it, leave a rating, whatever you can do. It really is the best way to help us out so we can get even more fascinating guests in 2023. A big hearty thank you, as always, to the Northern Illinois Band Kind ofs for the awesome music you hear each and every episode. And I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. We've got one more short episode before we jump back into brand new episodes at the beginning of 2023. We will see you soon.